the thing that most people want is emotional and internal peace and freedom. Mm -hmm. And you can get fit and strong and look like you have it all together. But if you feel like you aren't able to sleep at night, you feel anxious, ruminating your thoughts. If you're holding on to the past thoughts too much, you're scared of the future, you're anxious and resentful and worried a lot, then you probably have more healing work to do. The healing work happens when you heal those memories of the past and create new meaning behind them you become at peace with them and that sets you emotionally free lewis house is a new york times best-selling author keynote speaker and industry leading show host Powell's is a two-sport All-American athlete, former professional football player, and member of the USA men's national handball team. His show, The School of Greatness, is one of the top podcasts in the world with over 500 million downloads. He was recognized by the White House and President Obama as one of the top 100 entrepreneurs in the country under 30 years old. Lewis is an Ohio guy. He's from uh, just outside of Columbus. He's lived in Columbus. He went to Capital University. And Lewis is bringing the Summit of Greatness event here to Columbus, to the Ohio Theater in, in early September. And it's an honor for us at Gravity to be sponsoring the event, to be collaborating with Lewis, and to be able to bring the kind of content he brings to Columbus all right. Well, we are live here recording with Lewis Howes. Lewis, thank you for taking the time to join me on the Gravity Podcast. Thanks for having me, Brett. Excited, man. Yeah. You know, it's been fun to get connected with you. I've been following your work for a long time, knowing that you've got these Ohio ties. You know, it's always fun to see people from this part of the country out world doing really cool stuff. And yeah, I just love what you're up to. Appreciate it, man. If I was in Ohio still, I'd be trying to get in touch with people like you and collaborating with people like you and helping really build community there. So I was telling you before, I'm inspired by what you've been building and creating. And I think that's that's at the heart of what I'm doing. I always talk to my girlfriend. I'm like, we had to leave LA. Where would we go? Mm -hmm. And I'm always like, I would want to go back to Columbus at some point. And, mm -hmm. but it's just hard in the media space to... You know, I'm not as big as Joe Rogan yet, so I can't just go anywhere and, and all of it comes to me still. So I've got to be at the center of the media world still. Yeah. Well, there's something to be said for that. My son is actually probably moving out to LA and and for the same reason. And it's a pretty great place, especially doing what you're doing. But Columbus is here waiting for you anytime. I love yeah. Columbus. The only reason I do my annual event is so it gives me an excuse to come back. It's yeah. like, what's the reason I get to come back? And and it's like, okay, if there's a Michigan Ohio State game, I want to be there. Yeah. You know, my event of like maybe one or two other things, like give me an excuse to come back to Ohio. Yeah. Well, I don't know. We'll give you a chance to talk about the event. And I'm not sure if that times up with the football game, but if not, you'll come back for a game. Yeah. But I was that last year, but they lost. And I was so sad. That was rough. That was a tough I one. Know. That was tough. But yeah, I love that you you come back to Columbus and bring the event. You know, I think it's really important for people who are out in the world doing big things that have big national audience to be able to put a little bit of a, a highlight on on mm -hmm. Columbus in particular. Yeah. It's it's interesting because I have so many 
So many people that I've spoken in the past are like, Lewis, there's no way I would ever go to Ohio except for because you're doing this event here. Like Maria Sharapova came and spoke. She's mm -hmm. like, I don't, I don't think I would ever come to Ohio except for you because of your the experience, the community that you're creating here. So that's my goal is to just keep bringing the most inspiring speakers in the world to Columbus and then people flying from all over. So that's trying to put the uh, the city on the map. And people are always like, man, this is amazing. It's funny because I had one attendee after they came, they bought an Airbnb in <laughs> Columbus because they loved it so much. Yeah. This was probably five years ago. Yeah. And they're probably making good money now because it just keeps exploding. But yeah, yeah. when people are exposed to Columbus and especially what you're doing, yeah. I think people see it. They're, they're excited. They're attracted by the city. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons I love the city. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, we've had that experience. We've been bringing in some people from all over the country, you know, to try to bring this kind of content and this experience to the Midwest. You know, Gravity is really trying to create a Midwestern regional hub for, you know, this kind of content because not everybody can go out to the coast and go to the, you know, the big retreat centers. You know, people in this part of the country really are hungry for that same experience. So when people do come in, they are pleasantly surprised. They really, you know, wouldn't have come here otherwise, but love what they see. Exactly. Well, let's, you know, give the audience a chance to really, you know, unpack your full life journey. We'll, we'll come back to the event and all the cool things you're doing. But, you know, my format has really been to try to get people to see the whole journey to the work. And you've been really open and public about sharing your experience, but maybe we could just start, you know, at the beginning, at your very early childhood. I'd love to understand a little bit more about your life as a, as a little kid, your family dynamics, your, you know, siblings and parents and, you know, kind of sure. all that fun stuff. I mean, I grew up in Delaware, Ohio, just about 30, 40 minutes north of Columbus, but it was um, a very small town feeling, and I was the youngest of four. And some of my earliest memories are, unfortunately, not fun ones. Mm -hmm. And I think we either remember the, the times that are extremely fun and fulfilling and exciting, or the times that are very traumatic and sad. And I just think I had fun and exciting times as a kid too, but I think I had a lot more lonely scary, insecure, unsure uh, memories and sadness. And mm -hmm. it's all good. I feel like I've processed and healed a lot of it. But one of my first memories is being sexually abused as a kid by, a, you know, a 16, 17 year old when I was five. It's one of my first memories. I have a mm -hmm. memory from preschool. I have a memory from kindergarten on the first day, which is this is the first day of school for my one of my best friends here in L.A his daughter who's in first grade and it reminded me that was one of my first memories uh, as a kid around that age mm -hmm. and my brother three years after this when i was eight my brother went to jail for four and a half years and growing up in delaware ohio in a kind of a middle class suburbs i didn't know anyone or anyone's family member or or parents or siblings that went to prison mm -hmm. i only knew what i saw on tv mm -hmm. and so when this happened when i was eight it was pretty devastating for the whole family mm -hmm. and he was sentenced six to 25 years but he got out on four and a half on good behavior mm -hmm. he was and, how old uh, he was 19. okay so he was 11 years older than me i was eight he was 19 and mm -hmm. uh, he was at ohio he was a freshman at ohio state mm -hmm. in the music department he was one mm -hmm. of the top classical violinists in the country under 18 got all the scholarships and stuff went to ohio state and 
got in the wrong crowd. He was doing mm-hmm. sound a little bit of weed on the side back mm-hmm. then just to kind of like scrap around and make some money. Mm-hmm. Someone said, Hey, can you get this LSD? And he was like, no, you know, I don't have access to it. I don't know where to get it, but they kept persisting. And they said, Hey, there's a lot of money in this. If you can get it, he essentially got up in an undercover situation where they set him up. And this was in the nineties and the war against drugs was huge. Mm-hmm. And so six to 25 was kind of like the minimum sentence for his first time offense. So it was just a, a confusing, challenging time as an eight-year-old, as a you know five to eight. Mm-hmm. My parents also, you know, they I knew they loved us, but they didn't love each other. And so it was just didn't know what was going to happen every night. It was never a sense of safety and security. It was, okay, we have a home, mm-hmm. we have school, you know, we have food, but there wasn't a psychological or an emotional safety that I felt. Mm-hmm. And I don't blame my parents. They did the best they could with the tools that they had, but it was just very uncertain and mm-hmm. insecure. And I, and when my brother went to prison, it was a big deal in the neighborhood. Again, small town. It's not like I could just escape or hide or go, go away. Everyone knew what had happened. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't really allowed to have friends during those first few years because the the parents of other kids my age were just like, well, Lewis has got to be a bad kid too, or Lewis is going to be getting into trouble like this or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, just what parents would do. And mm-hmm. so it just felt lonely. It felt very insecure. I felt very unstable at home. And I, and I really did not excel at school. So I was mm-hmm. always in the bottom of my class, especially in middle school to high school, they would, they would rank us with our grade card of where we were in the class. And I was always in the bottom four. And I just think I just learned differently. I learned differently. I didn't know how to process emotions. So I was very up and down emotionally. I was very Mm -hmm. scared. I was a scared little boy for most of my life until Mm -hmm. I started to heal around 30, started Mm -hmm. to go around that process in the last 10 years. And, um, and on one side, I was very insecure and unsure of myself and, and afraid of life and everything. But on the other side, you know, I had this drive to be better, to make myself something of value, something useful in the world, something more than the bottom of my class, more than feeling insecure and stupid all the time, more than, you know, the second grade reading level that I had when I went into eighth grade and just feeling like, Oh, I'm never going to make it in school. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of the the childhood experience. And when I begged my family to send me away when I was 13, so my parents, I went to this, this, this camp, this kind of Christian camp in Missouri when I was a kid growing up, you know, they'd send us all, all of us kids away for a week or two at a time. And when I was 12 going into 13, from seventh to eighth grade, I went to this camp and I just met a bunch of kids that I was like, man, these kids are doing, they're like good values. They're kind, they're welcoming. You know, I felt accepted. Whereas I didn't feel accepted, you know, in my community necessarily in the kids school group or whatever. And I remember getting off the plane from St. Louis to Columbus. My parents picked me up that summer. This is the first, after the first two weeks of the summer, uh, one of the first things I said after I got off the plane was like, I want to go to this school, this school that a lot of these kids that were in that area in Missouri and St. Louis at the camp also went to. And I was like, I want to go to the school. I just want to get out of here. My brother had just gotten out of prison actually about a year prior, but my sister was off to college. You know, my brother was off living somewhere else. So it's kind of like I was there by myself. And 
again, I just didn't feel emotionally safe at home. There was just a lot of up and down emotions with my parents. And I was just ready to kind of start fresh. And this spoke to me. It called me. It's just like, I was just felt like I'm supposed to be here. I don't know how I'm going to get to this school. I don't know how is a private boarding school mm -hmm. where most kids get sent away to private boarding school. I begged my parents to send me away and they did not want me to go. They wanted me to stay with them. They wanted me to stay in Ohio. Uh, but every day that summer, I just begged them. They said, we're not going to be able to afford it. It's too expensive. I said, I'll write any amount of essays you need for financial aid or grants or whatever it might be. I'll do whatever it takes. And I was just so committed. And I think that consistency over two months, I applied, we got financial aid, I got accepted, all these different things. And they said, okay, you want it bad enough, drive you out there. Mm -hmm. And that was when things started to transform for me. When I moved mm -hmm. to eighth grade, I lived in a dorm as a 13 year old with a bunch of young boys. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was extremely strict. It was rigorous. It was, uh, you know, high level of wake up at 6 a.m. You know, there's essentially like roll call. You got to have your door open. You're doing homework in the mornings. You're cleaning your rooms. It's just, you know, it was very mm -hmm. strict. Dress code, everything. But I thrived off of that structure. It really gave me a, a sense of safety, a sense of structure, a sense of belonging to a community of boys and other, you know, men developing, boys into men from 13 until I was 17 when I was, you know, in a dorm, living in with a, another kid, you know, bunk bed, the whole thing for, for four and a half years. So it was a, it was a powerful experience. Let me just go back. That's, that's fascinating. You know, I want to hear more about, you know, how that landed with you to really make that change. And I know you have done a lot of work around everything that you just shared. And so, you know, even then, you know, I know that it's difficult to really be with experiences like that. I want to kind of just dig in a little bit more with you because I know you're, you know, open to doing this. You know, when you, you talk about being sexually abused, you know, at five, then your brother is going to prison at eight. Your parents, you know, are doing the best they can. What, right. Which, which I also believe to be true. You know, I had mm -hmm. my own, you know, difficult early childhood and, and I, you know, in hindsight as an adult can really look back on it after having done a lot of work and see it that way and yes. even see, even see in a way that allows you to really have a lot of gratitude, but you know, it's not to be skipped over either. Yeah. It's still right? changing the face. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm kind of curious, like if you can, and maybe it's just in hindsight, but like the insecurity, the, the lack of safety, the, the pain, you're just a kid, you know, mm -hmm. it's not your fault. It's just, it's happening though. I mean, it's, it's intense. It's intense to have, you know, that experience in life. And, and part of the reason I like to just like go there is because other people aren't able to process it or have it yet or might still be having something like that stuck inside of them, you know? And so, I don't know, maybe you, you just say, you know, whatever you want about it. You know, I just want to make sure we don't skip past that part too fast. Yeah. I think, you know, I, I have done 10 years of processing. It's interesting because I just did an interview recently, a couple of weeks ago that came out with this guy named Jeezy, who's a big rapper and artist and 
you know, done music with Jay-Z and Kanye West and Rihanna and, you know, Tupac back in the day, like he was a big rapper. And he just came out of the book and I had him on my show and he sent me a text uh, the other day. Let me just get this up and show you. He sent me this text with a photo of him. He was sending this because he was listening to my podcast at the same time when he sent me this text. You'll be able to see it. I'm not sure if everyone else is going to see this, but there's a photo of him as a five-year-old, right? As a child. Mm -hmm. And I was talking about this with him in our interview about how I, for about a year and a half, I had a photo like this mm -hmm. on my phone where I was able to really give my psychological wounded self at that age, the love, the support, the compassion, the conversations that I needed as a five, six, eight, 12, 15, 23 year old. I was able to do that consistently every time I open my phone and give that reactive, angry, frustrated, resentful, the world is against me attitude that I had for so long. I was able to do that for many years to, to create a, a stronger relationship with that part of myself that I had blocked, that I had resented, was fearful, angry, where my ego had, had overpowered Whatever it was I was doing to defend myself and protect me from the memories of the wounds from not only those seasons, but also seasons in high school and in college and breakups and relationships and challenges in business and whatever hurt that I experienced. It started with unlocking the idea of talking about sexual abuse because that was where the deepest wound was for me. That was kind of the foundation of all the reaction of me feeling taken advantage of or whatever I was feeling for most of my life, not enough, taken advantage of, worthless, all these different things that I felt and thought mm -hmm. and had mm -hmm. repeating on, on repeat, which drove me to get results, which drove me to try to outperform, which drove me to be an overachiever in sports and all these different things, which drove me to push my body through extreme amounts of pain and discipline so that I could amount to something and feel worthy. But no matter how much I accomplished or achieved, I still didn't feel it until about 10 years ago when I started to process and heal these memories, heal these wounds that were causing me heartbreak, causing me pain, essentially a fracturing of my psychology and my emotions, where some days I was happy and joyful and, you know, loving life. And other days when someone looked at me the wrong way, I wanted to fight. And why is that? Why do we have these emotional triggers that cause us to fight, to shut down, to feel not good enough? I don't think that's our human nature. I think that's our wounded nature that is causing these reactions. And when we can get to the root of the understanding of these memories, the things that cause us to react, where our nervous system feels triggered and heightened, and we, we need to do something, prove something, react, scream, fight, whatever it is. When we can get to that place of acknowledging it, assessing it, and processing it, which for me was the hardest task I've ever done in my life. It was the hardest thing at 30 years old to acknowledge that I was sexually abused and share it. For 25 years, no one know, knew about it. I didn't tell a soul because I thought if anyone knew this about me, no one would love me. No one would accept me. I would be alone and die alone. That was the fear. It was an irrational fear. And I also didn't want people to think that I was weak or soft or whatever I was afraid of. But actually, when I started to process and talk about it, it allowed me to start the process of freedom within me. It mm. didn't happen overnight. It wasn't like, oh, I've mentioned it and now I'm free forever. It was multiple years of processing. 
to the point where now I'm able to communicate about it without my nervous system reacting. And mm -hmm. I can still have compassion and sadness for myself at that age and know that this happened and that I'm okay now. I'm safe now. I'm emotionally okay now. And I have tools, strategies, coaches to support me if I ever don't feel that way. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of been the journey was, was learning how to assess my life and take a reflection point and take inventory of my life and ask myself, okay, what's really working well? And what are things that aren't working well? Why are my relationships constantly spiraling out of control when I repeating these things over and over again? Why am I choosing these things when I shouldn't be? Why am I acting in this way? Why, why am I getting reactive? And as opposed to blaming other people, I just said, okay, why am I responding in certain situations? It doesn't mean I have to like certain things and it doesn't mean I have to always do something if I don't like it, but how can I respond differently and create boundaries and stop abandoning myself to repeating these patterns so I'm feeling less than. And that is where the last 10 years has really led me to a place of peace and freedom that I've never had in my entire life. Hmm. And it's something that I never thought I would be able to experience this type of peace that I have. Now, it doesn't mean this last week I dealt with frustrating things in my business and I've got, you know, things to handle that might feel frustrating, but I feel an overall sense of calm and peace, even in breakdowns. Um, when I apply my philosophies, my strategies, my discipline with my routines, I do the things that I know support my mind and my mm -hmm. heart. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that's one of the reasons why I keep doing what I do. It's why I keep interviewing great minds and great leaders mm -hmm. in this area so that I can remind myself and keep applying these tools. Yeah, it's interesting. And then I have a lot of questions I want to come back to, you know, what you do today, you know, routines and all of that. I really fascinated with that. And I think a lot of the reason why I resonate with you and your material is because, you know, I've seen I've had a similar journey, you know, I've seen the power and healing and sharing and, and routines and all the modalities and, you know, the yet still like there's life being what it is. Right. And uh -huh. so I get it all. And I want to talk to you more about it. Just personally curious. Let's go back to the going away to school. Cause it sounds to me like, like in some ways, you know, my, my worldview is that, you know, this is like the whole thing is perfect for what it is and what it's not. Right. And it's like a mosaic and you're putting pieces together one by one. Right. And, and so it's really difficult. It's really hard. It doesn't make it right. Young children aren't supposed to be abused. I mean, but it led you perfectly to where you're at yeah, all absolutely. of it. And so that step going away seems like a big one something in you just knew this was a part of that path. And, 100%. and so, you know, go back to elaborating a little bit more about that piece of your journey. Yeah. I don't know. I just felt called. Like, I just felt like I need to be in this school and who knows what would have happened if I didn't go there, but I just know I was willing to do whatever it took to convince my parents and to get there. It doesn't mean I still had challenges and struggles there. It wasn't like everything was perfect, but it set me up as a human being to have greater lessons, greater perspective, and greater belief in myself. And I think sometimes we need to remove ourselves from an environment into a different setting to see what we are capable of creating. 
And I just felt like I was limiting myself because I didn't have really many friends in Delaware when I was up until 12. I really don't remember having friends. I kind of always tried to get in friend groups, but I was kind of kicked out a lot. Now I was a tall, goofy, awkward, insecure kid that was in the bottom of the class and kind of probably annoying in some ways. So I don't know if I'd hang out with me anyways back then, but it's just like, I felt like I didn't belong. I felt like I didn't fit in. I felt like no one cared about me. Uh, now I know that's not true, but that's how I felt at that time. Yeah. Ohio could be a place where, you know, especially then maybe not as much today, but mm -hmm. still, you know, I have felt like too, where if you are a little different, yeah. right. I mean, it's not an easy place to be unique. Exactly. Yeah. It's, in some ways it is, in other ways it's not. You know, if you mm -hmm. find the right group of those individuals who are unique in that way, then you're, I guess, accepted in that group. But I didn't feel like I fit in anywhere. I didn't feel like I fit into any types of groups in, in school. I was picked last, literally picked last on the playground. I remember when I was in elementary school for dodgeball game. There's certain memories of like trauma, right? Even though mm -hmm. it doesn't seem like it's that big a deal, but I remember yeah. specifically my teacher in the fourth grade said, hey, we're all gonna go out and do a class dodgeball game. And normally in recess, like we kind of go out and everyone do their own thing, you know, tether ball or the slide or whatever it is, run around. And he said, we're just doing like a class game, dodgeball. And he picked two guys to be like the captains. Okay, each get a pick. And each one of them picked all the guys first. And then they didn't pick me as one of the guys. And then they started picking all the girls. And then I wasn't even picked last. They, I was just by default, the last one that wasn't chosen and just had to go on a team. And I remember thinking, how can I not be like the, at least the last guy picked, right? I was, mm -hmm. I was the last girl picked, mm -hmm. which after the last girls picked. And so these little memories, I was like, never again, am I going to be picked last? The humiliation mm -hmm. of this, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And, um, and when I went to, so I was just like, I need to get out. And I was also went through a phase for about a year where I was like, just trying to impress people. I would like go into stores and like steal candy bars or cigarettes. I was like, just trying to feel something. I felt like acting out and scared, yeah. acting out all these things. Mm -hmm. And, and I remember it's just like, I don't like the way who I am, like things I'm doing, but I don't know who to hang out with. It was just kind of an awkward time. And mm -hmm. so I begged my parents to go and it was the best thing that probably ever happened to me in my life. I think it probably saved me in a lot of ways because it gave me a deeper sense of meaning, purpose, fulfillment. Mm. And I just, I was playing basketball in seventh grade and I just started to make maybe a couple friends on the basketball team, but I still wasn't that great. But it was like, okay, I'm getting a couple friends because I made this team and there's this bonding and this experience, but it just didn't feel like there was much room for growth. And when I left, it was like I was in a new environment. I could kind of let go of this whole past and not nearly necessarily start fresh, but people could see me in a fresh way. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like I had a Matthew McConaughey on my show and he talked about, you know, I was the hottest thing in, in Hollywood for many years for doing romantic comedies as, as being the guy who was shirtless, you know, heartthrob and people magazine cover for the hottest man or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But then I kind of got burnt out and it kind of, got tired of that game. And he said, I paused from doing romantic comedies. And he said, I got offered, I don't know, 10 or $15 million to, to do a role. And he turned it down. And he said, I paused and I waited a year 
because I just said, I don't want to do romantic comedies. And then after Hollywood got the, the idea that he didn't want to do them anymore, after he wasn't going to take any money, they started to forget about him. They started to forget about him until he reemerged in this new character with the uh, Dallas Buyers Club. Mm. And they saw him in a different light. After a couple of years passed, he came back. It was a new environment. And they got to see him in a different, in a fresh perspective. That's kind of what I got when I went to the schools. Like I was coming into my own a little bit more. It was a fresh perspective. I could step into who I wanted to be. And they didn't know my best. Mm -hmm. And that was a, was a powerful thing because it was a very small school. In my middle school, I think there was a hundred kids in the whole middle school. The high school was 300 kids. So it was mm -hmm. tiny. You got to meet people quickly. And, and I started to excel in sports around that time. Mm -hmm. So my freshman, sophomore year, I was on varsity for everything because it was mm -hmm. such a small school. Yeah. So I found myself finding value in sports. Mm -hmm. I was going to ask you about that. I'm glad you brought it up because, you know, I think I've had a lot of people on my podcast too. And, and, you know, it's different things for different people, you know, and, and it all seems to be, you know, kind of energetic, but the act of being physical and especially, you know, I think, uh, I don't know, maybe it's just true for everybody. Maybe it's more true for, for men, boys, I don't know. Maybe that's not the case, but, but the act of moving, of being on a team of, of, you know, the things that sports really gives you the opportunity to do, you know, attempt to compete, to win, you know, to, to celebrate, to, you know, cry, whatever it is, it's, all, it's sort of all there. And I know it was yes. a big part of your life. So, you know, elaborate, you know, and be kind of, I think a lot of people really minimize it as sports, you know, it's just, it's just sports, but the way I look at it is there's so much there that can be so healing. It, it's community. I mean, it's not, you know, just yeah. a game, just a ball. Talk about this. Yeah. I mean, there's slogans like Adidas, I think is all day. I dream about sports and there's like basketball is life hashtags. It's like these, these sports aren't just a game that you play an hour a day once in a while. It becomes life when, or a big part of your life, I should say, when you immerse yourself on a team and in a community of people that are all trying to get better at something, and specifically when you're on a team and you're not just doing it individually, you learn more about life, your emotions, success, failure, relationships, than I think if you were just living life, because it gives you scenarios every day in a practice to have to work together and overcome a challenge and face obstacles and listen to a coach and take feedback and communicate so that you guys can work towards a goal. Like you don't get that in school. You're not working together unless you're collaborating on a project, but you're just kind of like receiving information, going to the next class and going home to your, your family and doing some after school activities. But sports is the perfect scenario for life and figuring out your life in my mind, especially a physical sport. When you have to endure pain and think beyond your body and say, how do I navigate this next moment, this next play? How do I do it with grace? How do I stay in the flow? How do I be present? How do I get out of my own mental devices and think about others? How do I be of service to my teammates? It just replicates in such a beautiful way in life. And so I got so connected to that. And it's why you see a lot of athletes go depressed 
or have mental challenges or go bankrupt after sports is over because it's so hard to get that experience, that feeling of being in the locker room, of preparing for a game, of driving on a bus with your teammates and having fun. It's so hard to recreate that on a consistent basis. Mm-hmm. To have something in common that you're fighting for or battling against or you know competing for, it's just hard to replicate that. And that's why I think it was powerful for me. That's where some of my greatest lessons came from. And and also after sports for you too. I know you've talked about, you know, your professional football career and then, you know, realizing that you weren't going to be able to make Mm -hmm. that your future and, you know, being on your sister's couch and, you know, going through that whole period too. And I'm curious, you know, when you think back to the period of sort of in between, right before you get into the, you know, LinkedIn digital media kind Mm -hmm. of space, when you think about like that depressive period, after you kind of get to the school, you, you excel in yep. the sports, right? You've recreated yourself. Is it this old part of you that kind of found its way back into the driver's seat that was having you feel like you couldn't do it or something else? I mean, talk a little bit about, you know, what yeah. was going on at that time in your life? I mean, it's interesting because I was, I was, I was practice. I was on the practice squad with the Columbus destroyers for like a month. And, I really thought I was going to make the team. They were like, hey, if we win this week, we're going to go into the playoffs and you got a spot. And I really, and they, they lost. And I was like, dang it. I was like, I was really hoping to make the team so that I could show more what I could do for the next season. They didn't even pick me up the next season. So I played down in Alabama. But during that, that window of time, I don't know, three or four months, I was living in Columbus. There's actually um, a place called the Columbus Music Hall that now is like a brewery down off of, Parsons Ave and Broad. Mm-hmm. And uh, there used to be a little loft upstairs, a little studio loft for artists and musicians. My brother is a jazz violinist from Columbus, the, mm-hmm. Columbus, the number one jazz violinist in the world. And he got me the spot. I was paying $250 a month. And um, during that time, I was training in the mornings and training at nights for football. And I got a job as a truck driver. I was driving from Columbus, Napa Auto Car Parts. Um, I would drive to Napa Auto Truck Delivery Center, get in my truck for the morning after my workout, drive to Cincinnati, change the car parts, and then drive back. I did that on repeat, six hours a day, training in the morning, driving a truck, training at night. And I was bouncing at a place called Boma, which was a nightclub. I don't know what Boma is now. I think it's another nightclub right off Broad Street as well. Mm-hmm. And I was doing that on the weekends, just trying to make enough cash to pay for my 250 a month rent and have enough food. And I, was, and I was doing that for a while until I went to go play arena football. Then I got injured playing arena football in Alabama, came back to Columbus. I got no money because we're making 250 a week in, in arena football as well. Got no money, no savings. I'm in debt still from school. And I go live on Weber Road with my sister. And I'm there for a year and a half on her couch. She eventually gets me a bed, but I was on her couch for a while. And I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. I had no clue. And I was really insecure because I had built up this identity and really an ego thinking I had things figured out because of my physical abilities, my athleticism, my body being healthy. And now it wasn't healthy. They took a bone out of my hip. They put it into my wrist. I was in a cast for six months and I just, I couldn't work out. I couldn't really walk that well because I was still recovering from the hip thing. And this was in 2000, end of 2007. 
when this happened, the surgery happened. So in all of 2008, on my sister's place off Weber Road in Clintonville. Mm-hmm. And there was a time for, yeah, maybe three to six months where I was like, really felt like that kid in elementary school where I was like, what's the point of even being alive? Why should I be here? Who am I? What's my identity? Do I even have any skills that are desirable? Do people really like me for me? Am I lovable? All these questions. And that's when I said, don't know the answer to this, but I need to make my life like a sport. I don't understand anything else about life but sports. And since I can't play right now, how can I make it like a sport? I just said, I need mentors. I need like some coaches and mentors because that's what got me to where I was as an athlete. There was a few local mentors, a guy named Chris Hawker, who's from Columbus, who really mentored me for many years. Another guy, Frank Agan, who's in Columbus as well. And these two guys supported me locally by giving me tools, by you know letting me pick their brain once a week and bugging the crap out of them. And that's when I also started getting on LinkedIn. And I met these people through LinkedIn by messaging local CEOs or business leaders and saying, hey, I'd love to learn about your story of success. And um, I just learned early on how to reach out and get people to respond. The more I did that for my own benefit to just learn, hey, I don't know what to do. The recession was happening in 2008, if you remember that with the housing Mm -hmm. crisis. People weren't hiring those that had master's degrees and I hadn't graduated college yet because I left early. So I was really struggling emotionally, psychologically, and financially. I didn't make any money for a while. And I was at my sister's house as a 23, 24 year old, feeling like a bum. Um, But luckily I had somewhere to go and she gave me food and shelter. And after a year and a half, she was like, it's time to start paying rent or you gotta go. And that's when I said, okay, let me, my brother was living in Columbus. So I called him. I said, Hey, can I crash your place? (laughs) He said, you got to pay, you got to pay rent. And that was one of the best things that my family did for me is they held me accountable. Like they gave me time, but then they were like, all right, it's been a year and a half. Like it's time to get a job, do something like you got to figure it out. And that was the, the time where I was like, okay, I've got to really take a risk and be willing to fail and ask for money and find opportunities and see what sticks. And because my back was against the wall and I was required now to take more ownership and responsibility for my life, it forced me to get creative, to make take risks emotionally, ask for things that maybe I didn't feel like asking for because of my ego uh, and try things. Mm-hmm. And that's when the Since I was on LinkedIn so much for that year and a half, connecting with people, trying to meet local, inspiring people, I started to also add value to the people I was connecting by asking them what's the biggest challenge. And since I had such a big network at that time of of leaders locally, I was like, oh, you should connect to so-and-so or Brett's doing this thing or Josh is doing this thing and connecting them. So I just became kind of the champion of people's problems by finding them solutions. And... um, and I realized that that was a skill set, and I didn't know that was a skill. Interesting. I want to, I want to, you know, jump into how that, you know, translates into what you're doing today. Because I know there's a path there. You learned about, you know, community building, doing events, things like that. But I'm curious, you know, if I'm skipping something here, you know, feel free to go back. But you talked about age 30. And, and the healing that really begun then. And I'd like to understand a little bit more about how you 
took a step into that healing, what you were doing therapy or whatever else it was, you know, what, what happens that that year begins a big step in your healing process? The perfect storm happened for me. I had moved to Los Angeles for a girl that I was in a relationship with. We were kind of long distance. Um, and I was in New York City at that time. I moved from Columbus to New York City to pursue a dream of playing on the USA national handball team to try to make the Olympics. And started dating this girl and ended up moving to LA because she wanted to be in the same city as me. And so I moved to LA and quickly it didn't work out. She broke up with me like within an hour after I landed and moved everything and kind of just sabotaged it, right? Just she wanted it, but then she was afraid of it. It was, it was like, what am I doing here then? We got back together, I think the next day or two days later, and it was just an up and down emotional roller coaster for the next six to nine months. And that really messed with me because I was like, man, I told myself I would never move for a girl. I did it. And look at what's happening. And I just didn't know how to manage the up and down emotions of what she was going through. And some days she was happy. Other days she was mad at me. And I was like, you're not communicating. But really, we just weren't in alignment. And I just didn't make the right choice. There's nothing wrong with her. We just weren't the right fit. And I was trying to make something work that never should have been happening in the first place. And that's why it was so challenging. So that was on me. But that was something that was really messing with me emotionally and psychologically was dealing with that relationship and then ending the relationship and dealing with that and just being like, why am I here? Who am I? Kind of all this all over again. Um, I was also in a my other business that I had started two and a half, three years prior to this in Columbus with another business partner of mine from Columbus. It started to really take off. You know, in the second or third year, we we're doing, I don't know, $3 million in sales. Whereas a couple of years prior, I had nothing. So it was pretty quickly taking off. But I was also nonstop working all day, all night, because I was kind of like, it's working. I've got cash in the bank. I don't want to go back to zero and be on my sister's couch. So I was busting my butt. But the business partnership had started to, we had different visions for what we wanted. And I lacked the emotional awareness on how to communicate consciously. And so did he. So it's more just friction and frustration and resentment and things like that. Um, and we were in New York City at one point, And I remember almost getting in a fist fight with him in the middle of Times Square because we were just disagreeing on so much. And we were both frustrated with each other. So we didn't speak to each other for months after that. And then I actually got in a physical fist fight on a basketball court in Los Angeles, like a couple months after that. So kind of all of these things Everyone was okay, but it was just kind of like my best friend was with me at the time playing on this pickup basketball game when it happened. And he was like, man, something, you know, you're just getting really reactive in situations that you don't need to be. This is a simple pickup game. You know, there's, there's nothing life-threatening, and yet you reacted to his reaction and allowed this to happen. And you could have de-escalated it, but you didn't. And I don't want to play basketball anymore if you're going to be like this. So it was kind of like all these things kept happening. And I was like, huh, I'm at the center of all these challenges. I can't blame everyone else. This is my responsibility. And I remember just thinking, okay, let me, let me take a look at this. Let me ana analyze myself and let me try some stuff. And so people were recommending workshops. I was like, all right, let me try all these different workshops and see what's out there. And one of these workshops is what allowed me to finally get feedback about how I'm showing up to be able to receive it. And to that's when I started opening up about sexual abuse for the first time was in one of these workshops. And that 
sent me down a path of researching so much more on different types of therapies, modalities, healing processes that I feel like I've tried so many of them over the last 10 years. And I'm constantly willing to explore new stuff because I think there's always a journey of healing. It's not like you're healed and it's over and you just, you don't have to worry mm -hmm. about it anymore. It's mm -hmm. a constant journey of healing. And it's been a 10 year journey and it's mm -hmm. been a beautiful one, but mm -hmm. that's been the process. Yeah, I relate to that. It is, it is an ongoing thing, you know, and I'm just curious before we move on, are there any of the workshops that you want to name by name or any of the modalities? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, I mean, I have, I oh mean, I went to India and studied to become a meditation instructor for a number of weeks in India. Mm -hmm. I've done, you know, I was in Poland with Wim Hof. I took a group of guys there and did breathing, meditation, mm -hmm. ice therapy, heat therapy. I think both of the, all those work really well. Mm -hmm. You know, I just think going to the gym is a great therapy. So I don't think you need to spend money to like do some special therapies. Mm -hmm. I think it's all therapy. But I think you got to find what works for you to feel emotionally free. And I think that's the, the thing that most people want is emotional and internal peace and freedom. Mm -hmm. And you can get fit and strong and look like you have it all together. But if you feel like you aren't able to sleep at night, you feel anxious, ruminating your thoughts. If you're holding on to the past thoughts too much, you're scared of the future you're anxious and resentful and worried a lot, then you probably have more healing work to do. Mm -hmm. And if you can get to a place of emotional peace, it doesn't mean you're not going to face challenges and frustrations and sadness and grief and loss. But if you can be at a day-to-day -day emotional peace about your past and about yourself, doesn't mean you have to like what happened, love what happened. You could have done horrible things or had horrible things happen to you. It doesn't mean you have to love it. It just means have peace with it. I truly believe that's where the healing work happens when you heal those memories of the past and create new meaning behind them. You become at peace with them, and that sets you emotionally free. Mm. Uh, doesn't make you. You still might have to hold, be accountable to certain things and have ownership of things, but it's it's about that inner world. And I've done you know I've done a lot of work in prisons. Because my book, my my previous book, The Mask of Masculinity, was all about how men can mm -hmm. pull back the masks and emotionally be free. Mm -hmm. And a lot of prisons have, you know, inmates in prison have sent me these beautiful handwritten letters about how they've found freedom and peace behind bars mm -hmm. through the work. And I've gone in and led workshops in, in California to a few different prisons. And it's it's amazing to see that there are some men who are behind bars who have found inner peace and freedom, emotional freedom. Mm -hmm. but they will be in prison for life. And yet there are men who are not behind bars, but they're in a prison in their own mind or, or emotions. Mm -hmm. That for me is, is one of the scariest things when you are, you know, free, not behind bars, but you're emotionally imprisoned. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, it's a, it's been a journey. A workshop that I went to was in Los Angeles, but the same workshop is in Columbus, Ohio called next level mm -hmm. and it's a powerful workshop there that that is all about healing interesting uh, i'll have to check that out we'll maybe link to the notes uh, but i i want to just kind of tug on that thread a little bit because i was curious you know you you've had tremendous success 
you know, you've really emerged in a, what's today, at least a pretty crowded space. You know, there's so many podcasts, everybody's self-publishing. There's a lot of ways to, you know, kind of um, do self-help and, you know, speak and, you know, Ted talks. And personally, I think it's great. I mean, I, I think the more people out there for the most part, I mean, you get some people claiming to be shamans and gurus and whatever that, you know, maybe are, are not doing a lot of good, but for the most part, I think it's really great. It's crowded. There's a lot of content out there. You've really emerged and and I love it again, you know, an Ohio guy, you know, you're, you're this, you know, large presence that, that, you know, traditionally people weren't necessarily looking at people like you, men like you to talk about the kinds of things that you're talking about, you know, vulnerability and healing and, and abuse, you know, and uh, I wonder, I wonder as you have the success that you have and do the healing that you've done, does it still feel like times there's this part of you that jumps back in that wants to next level or, or, or prove something still. I mean, does, does the inner child, you know, still in there or have you learned to use it? You know, you're aware of it and now you're just, you know, out there, you know, having fun. I, I don't know. I'm just wondering, selfishly curious about it. I think most of my life I was very competitive. And when I hit 30, I realized Competing to be the best is a losing game. Competing to be number one is a losing game. Now, my ego wants to grow and be the first or be the top of what I'm doing. So that is there. I want to keep growing and be number one and these different things, but I know that causes me suffering if I allow my ego to drive that conversation. It doesn't mean I don't like it when things are like, oh, it's, you know, the top or number one or this or what, you know, it's the biggest. Like it's fun for me because it's something that I'm also proud of. I'm proud of creating something that has meaning and impact in a big way. So I like that element of it. And it's also necessary in a lot of ways for my business to grow in order for these things to be growing at a top level. In order for us to bring the revenue to pay people on our team and expenses, like we're going to need this to be at a high level in order for us to, to be around. Otherwise, you know, there's two, three million podcasts that no one listens to and no one makes money with. So um, it would just be a different experience. But I, when I hit 30 and when I started to heal, I started to realize that um, it's collaboration over competition every single day. Mm-hmm. And so I'm always thinking about how can I collaborate with people and partner with people that are in alignment or something I'm curious about. And how, and that's one of the reasons when I started my show. I was like, it can't be about me. Yes, I'm going to be the host. And yes, this is my face on there. But it's not for me. It's not the Lewis House show. It's the School of Greatness. And it's about everyone else that I'm facilitating and curating. And I'm shining the light on them. I'm putting, this is the expert. I'm not the expert. I'm not the guru. I'm not the sham. I'm not the guy. I'm just curious of the people that I'm bringing on. And I want to share it with you in a unique perspective based on my curiosity. And that's how it's been for the last 10 years. We had our 10 year anniversary and it's just still leaning into finding the right people who have the answers. Mm-hmm. Just like when I was on LinkedIn back in 2007, mm-hmm. finding people who have 
some knowledge, some experience, some wisdom that can inspire my community. And the community mm -hmm. has grown over the years. And so I've got to be specific about what does my community need and want and how can I serve them through collaboration. But I think, yeah, the ego always tries to creep in. And it's one of the reasons why I do my practices, why I push myself through pain on a, in a healthy way, on a consistent basis, through workouts, through meditation, through mm -hmm. saunas, to drain my darkness side of the ego and bring me back to harmony, peace, and collaboration. It's funny because I think some of this stuff gets a bad rap and, you know, maybe people are sort of, there's like, you know, the memes like about, you know, your cold plunge and, you know, right. Like people, you know, kind of all excited about this yes. stuff and, and using it sort of egoically. But the truth is, I mean, for me, the modalities you just mentioned, they're so healing, you know, and it's, and it's not trivial, you know, to get in cold water, to, to right. meditate. When it's backed by science. It's like, okay, here we go. Right. So, so maybe just run through, you mentioned, but like, what are the things you're currently doing that you really feel support you the most? I, I try to do the things that are free mm -hmm. that support me the most. Um, but I, I really try to go to the gym almost every day. Mm -hmm. And I've gone through seasons in my life where it's three days a week or five days a week. But now I just realize, like, even if I just go in there and stretch and do something, it's going to help me process my thoughts. So I try to grow every day. It's probably five to six days a week. Um, I'm all about, you know, I just hit 40 a few months ago. So I'm really thinking about what will my future self be grateful for that I do now consistently. And there's just so much research and science around meditation that is undeniable on your health and of your emotions and your thoughts and your joy and your happiness. It's the research is undeniable. And plus, when you do it yourself and you learn what works for you, it's hardest to not do something that's working. I always tell someone, if you're feeling depressed or sad or lonely or upset, go to the gym and you're going to feel less of those things. You're going to feel a little bit better. It's, or just walk, move, do something. Same thing with meditation. And I've done lots of different types of meditations over the last 10 years, but any meditation will work for you if you like it. Mm -hmm. I'm also a big fan of ice and sauna. You know, I've been doing ice since I was 18. You know, it's like what we did in college every day after practice. It's becoming more popularized now, but athletes have been doing this for a long time. And so I really like doing ice a few days a week, three to five minutes at a time, 40, 42 degrees. I just think it's hard to be upset after you get in three minutes of ice. You might be in pain, but you always feel better. Same thing with mm -hmm. sauna. I did 30 minutes last night, 200 degrees. Mm -hmm. It sucks. I don't want to be in there. Mm -hmm. But it's hard to feel bad about yourself afterwards. You always feel better after you do something challenging. Those are the main things. I'm a big fan of emotional processing. And you can call that a therapist. You can call that whatever you want. Someone you can talk to that allows you, that that is non-judgmental, that allows you to say what you need. It could be a priest, a counselor, a therapist, whatever you want, that is accepting of your identity and your being, allowing you to process in a safe environment to release emotional things that might be trapped inside of you are causing friction. Mm. And I think if you don't have that person in your life, then finding someone that you can hire as an as a expert to do that is mm -hmm. just a game changer. Yeah. And those things would be like the main, the mm -hmm. main things. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that and for sharing everything you've shared today. And with so many people, I know you've got 
the book out, The Greatest Mindset. We spoke a little bit about the event, but share with the audience, you know, more about the event or what you're up to. And and maybe, you know, and this is again sort of selfishly curious, but what do you see the future looking like? You know, again, the the space is crowded. You've emerged in a crowded space. Oh, the the probably the challenge in continuing to expand what you're doing, expand the impact has got to be there for you. So maybe you could elaborate on, you know, the event and what that looks like yeah. and what the future looks like. Well, I think the future is, I mean, you just have to be so flexible and so adaptive to platforms. You know, mm-hmm. if you're going to be in the podcasting author, personal brand, online marketing space, the the number one thing you can do is to uh, acquire a lead, you know, an email or a text or a cell phone is to have ownership of your own audience. But that's really hard to do. It's hard to get people to opt in. You know, people have more email than ever, uh, but having something of value for people to opt in is the number one thing. Other than that, you've got to be so adaptable to being able to create content that people want to consume on specific platforms. And it just feels like there's constant updates and changes one thing might have worked two weeks ago that's not going to work today. So I think the the future is being flexible, being adaptable if you want to be in this game. And it's very few people that don't have to play the content game. You know, very few. I think but they're still playing it at some level. You think of like a, a David Goggins, right? He wrote two runaway books, like Lightning in a Bottle books that took off. I think he sold over five or six million copies, self-published, which is unheard of. But he only creates like one piece of content a week, right? He's not in this content game everywhere. It's like he just doesn't once a week. And he did a couple of years of some big interviews that that allowed him to keep growing, but he's not in the constant day-to-day of it. That's very rare to have someone have that strong of an audience, that strong of a community with little of content. Uh, and again, that's just maybe that's the extreme nature of his personality that allows him to build that community but I don't know how long that'll last, right? Mm-hmm. It could last decades or it could all change. I have no idea. But other than that, if you want to be a personal brand, if you want to have a podcast, if you want to write books, courses, I just feel like you've got to be all in on it if you want to be able to grow. It's hard to, to dabble and do things part-time and expect to excel in a crowded space. You know, you didn't just say, oh, let me just put a little, a few dollars together and we'll just throw up a building and hope people come. You went all in on gravity and the whole experience of your your buildings and the community. And it's an experience unlike anything people have ever seen in Columbus. And therefore, that's why it's 95% occupied and people talk about it because they've never seen anything like it in the area before. Um, you didn't dabble. You went all in. You put your whole life and resources into it, and that's why it succeeds. So I just think people have to be aware of, okay, am I doing something because I just love it and I just want to have fun? And if people see it or consume it, cool. Awesome. Just know what you're getting into then. It's a lot of work. And if you want to make it grow, it's even harder sometimes. So you have to really be innovative. I think you got to take risks. You know, I feel like it goes in waves. You have to ride the wave. You know, last few years, my stuff was blowing up and I feel like the last six months, it's been kind of going on a down wave. And so it's like, all right, what are we doing internally that's off? What do I need to do to innovate? What's what's something I'm missing in the algorithm? Whatever it is, it's like, you got to pay attention. You can't just set it on autopilot and hope it works in every every month. So 
that's part of that. In terms of the event, yeah, Summit of Greatness is something that I started, I think, eight years ago in Columbus as a, as a vision of mine to give back to the community that gave me so much. Um, and I wanted to, I was able to speak at and attend all these top events around the world and be on stages with these inspiring speakers and leaders. And I was like, man, we never had anything this like this in Columbus. Let me bring it to Columbus. Let me serve Columbus. And I've never made any money on this event. We've lost money every year. So I haven't figured out how to make it profitable, but it, for me, it's the best weekend of the year because mm -hmm. I get to be in my hometown. I get to bring thousands of people from around the world to Columbus. And my all, whole goal is how do I get Columbus to come to the event? I bring mm -hmm. it there because they don't have access, but then maybe 10% of the audience is from Columbus or the surrounding area. So that's been my vision is to, to get more people there. And you know, if, if they don't want it after 10 years in a couple more years, then maybe I have to take it somewhere else, but hopefully no, I no. get more locals there. Don't do that. We're going to make it, we're going to, I hope to make it profitable, but it definitely. Even if I don't make money, I don't care. I just want yeah. people to come who are locals. I, you know? I get that. I really do. And, and I share that with you. I mean, this is why we've created the community that we have in Columbus. And when we get people here and we've had, you know, some, some great, leaders come to Columbus, like we talked about, people love it. They want it. They're thirsty for it. They need it, yeah. you know? And so I really, uh, really appreciate you having that same vision and wanting to give back to this community. And yeah, we're going to do everything we can to get people there. You know, I'd love to, I will talk more about, you know, sponsoring and, and collaborating. Cause I do agree with you. It's just, got to be a collaboration in order for us to really ultimately win. But yeah, the event is what, September 7th through 9th? 7th here through 9th, Columbus. Ohio, yeah. Ohio Theater, one of the most iconic theaters in all of Ohio. You know, it's, it's a beautiful yeah. experience. And it's art, it's music, it's speaker, it's community. It's, it's kind of mm -hmm. like what you've created as community, but on steroids for three days. Yeah, yeah. And I know you have it throughout the whole year. Yeah. But that's what this is all about. And it's yeah. bringing you know, speakers and talent that normally would never be there. Yeah. And that's the vision to bring people together. There's it's so many amazing stories of people who have met each other. They've come solo. They meet other people. They start businesses together. We have a number of people who have met who are now married mm -hmm. after meeting from the Summit of Greatness. It's like Great. there's so many cool stories that come from it. That's awesome. Well, we're going to be giving away some tickets and doing our part to support and Lewis, I, you know, really thank you for all that you're doing, taking time to come on the podcast, the event, but you know, you're, you're a part of a communal healing, you know, you're sharing yourself and, and your journey and your knowledge and bringing on incredible people and, and just being curious with them. And, and so many people are learning as a result of, of what you're putting out in the world. So I love that. And, you know, just have a lot of gratitude for, for you and for people like you that are, you know, a part of connecting with, with others, you know, in this, in this way, you know, it's, it's not for everybody to go to India or to a right. therapist or right. But like so a lot of people will, will pick up your book or listen to your podcast because they relate to you. And that's really yeah. important. And like you mentioned before, there's not many, you know, I never saw examples of guys that looked like me talking about these topics, right? like you mentioned before. So I've always tried to be a 
a Trojan horse for as many people as possible. Yeah. To bring people in for maybe one thing they want to have, but really revealing something else that they might need even more. Yeah. And that's, that's what I try to do with my show, with my books, it's like giving people the thing they, they think they want, but then teaching them what they need in order to get there. So it's more fulfilling and long lasting and I'll keep doing it, man. Good. Good. Well, thank you. Appreciate it. I appreciate you, man. Thank you. All right. We'll see you here in Columbus pretty soon. Oh, man. Thanks. Bro. All right. Thank you. That's a wrap. Thank you for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the entire Gravity Project, please go to gravityproject.com. Please check out the podcast on Instagram at the Gravity Podcast. Music heard of the show is provided courtesy of Kyle Lamoro and Oliver Oak. 